am recording now. Okay, I am recording also. So, we're going to be deviating from how we normally start the show. Instead of telling a story about the subject of the episode, uh, we're going to issue a content warning. Why? Well, because this one is a rough story that involves the willful murder of children and adults, all masked in religious devotion. We are going to be speaking about the life of a person that culminated in that act, while trying to understand how that person went from being a proponent of equality and justice to, well, killing kids. So, there's the content warning. This is going to be a rough episode with the potential to upset our beloved listeners. On that note, neither Ella and I will be bothered or offended if you elect to skip this episode and come back for the next one. With all that being said, on this episode of Relative Disasters, we're going to be discussing the life of Jim Jones and the events of the Jonestown mass murder of 1978. Uh, so where would you like to start? Well, we need to start with Jim Jones himself. Mm-hmm. This is such a weird life because Jim Jones is somebody who honestly could have gone down as one of the great figures of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s uh, and instead is only remembered as a murderous cult leader. And tracking how he got from one to the other... Mm-hmm seems like a huge leap. It would be a huge leap for most folks, but Jim Jones was kind of disturbed is the wrong word. How do I phrase this? I think he's a good example of someone who is obviously a complicated person like most people are. Yeah. But he tends to he tends to show elements of fanaticism from a very early age. And when yes. those are going in a positive direction, you can see that he is really trying to bring good into the world. But it's from the lens of being a very troubled individual who is also extremely passionate and uh, persuasive. Yeah. And and you need all of that to be a good cult leader. And you're right. He could have gone in many, many, many directions. He really could have. And, and he's somebody who I don't think his fanaticism can really be downplayed because he... Uh, he had several very uh, formative moments in his young life, and that's where we're going to begin. But each one of those, I think, really informed his fanaticism. So Jim Jones was born in 1931. He was born in a very rural area of Indiana in a town called Crete. His dad was a World War One veteran. His mom was absolutely instrumental in raising Jones. His father and he did not get along very well at all. He claimed that his father associated with the Ku Klux Klan, mm-hmm. and he and his father had arguments on the subjects of race, and apparently there was an incident where one of Jones's friends, who was African-American, attempted to come over for a visit, and his father physically forced the boy out of the house. Jones's parents later separated, and he and his mother relocated to Richmond, Indiana. And he worked for a little while at a hospital. While he was working at this hospital as an orderly, that he met a nurse named Marceline Baldwin, and they married in 1949. Uh, And then they moved to Bloomington, Indiana, where he went to Indiana University at Bloomington. They relocated to Indianapolis in 1951. And... 
1951, while in Indianapolis, he began attending gatherings of the USA Communist Party. Right, and he's a student at this time, right? Yes, he was a he was a college student. He was, you know, he was 20 years old. And it's the early 1950s, so the McCarthy hearings are going on. He and his mother attended an event. I believe it was an event either about or for Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. And then some FBI agents showed up at his mother's place of business and harassed her for attending this. Mm-hmm. After the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, Jones decided that the best avenue of social change was through the church. That's an interesting leap. kind of leap, yeah. Because at this point, he's got, like, all the makings of a young radical. Right. But he doesn't turn to, like... The radical movement. He turns to... Right. He doesn't go into politics. Right. He doesn't exactly. become, like, a labor union agitator. Or an he goes right yeah. into the church. He goes to the church, which, of course, you know, usually skews conservative, and especially in Indiana. Mm-hmm. So he becomes a student pastor in the Methodist church. And he witnesses his first faith healing service at a Seventh-day Baptist church. Faith healing really appeals to his sense of being a preacher. I think that's the thing. Come to me, I will take away your ills. And very cynically, he also knows that this gets a lot of people through the door, giving a lot of money to the church. There it is. There it is. There's Jim. So he figures out his path to getting his own church. In 1956, there was a really, really big religious convention that was going to take place in the Cato Tabernacle in Indianapolis. He had an in with somebody and arranged to be on the pulpit with the Reverend William Branham, who was a healing evangelical and religious author. Uh, He was sort of he was on, it sounds weird because nobody really remembers Branham anymore, but he was basically like Oral Roberts as well. Like, he was at that level. Mm. Um, and after he speaks from the pulpit with this guy, he's able to start his own church. He goes through a bunch of different names until he settles on the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel, which is later shortened to the People's Temple. Something about that name really gives me the creeps, and I don't know. Yeah what it is to me it's the sort of word salady nature of it i can see where he's trying to get it just his entire plan was to make this church and desegregate it Mm -hmm. to prove a point because he knew it was going to be a problem for people right and he wanted to he wanted to make this problem He's ordained as a, as a minister in 1957 by the Independent Assemblies of God. So one of the first things that came up when studying the character of Jim Jones, by which I mean his his public persona, is that he really, really, really studied powerful historic leaders. In particular, he focused on five. He focused on Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, Mahatma Gandhi, Joseph Stalin, and Adolf Hitler. I think if you have to study five people who had an enormous impact on history, those are some good people to start with. Uh, but you don't want to seek to emulate them necessarily. I mean, the other uh, major person that he focused on, 
uh, is a man named Father Divine. Mm. Uh, was was into was a uh, a man named Father Divine, and he learned his manipulation techniques from Hitler and Divine. He was friends with Divine, and Divine. There's a a a, a cited quotation where Divine told Jones personally to find the enemy and to make sure your congregation knows who the enemy is. Because what that does is unify the group and make them subservient to him. And how many times have we seen that in the past, whether we're talking dictatorships or cult leaders or combinations of both? So that was the form in which Jim Jones began to preach. And he had his enemy. Well, his enemy was was inequality that he saw in his congregation every day. In 1960, the mayor of Indianapolis appointed him as director of the local human rights commission. Oh, boy. Okay. But with the understanding that this was a publicity move on the mayor's part, not meant to really raise Jones's profile, but this is Jim Jones we're talking about here. So instead of keeping a low profile, he would, like, just go on TV, like local TV Mm -hmm. and everything else, Whenever he felt like it, there is a famous incident of him attending a meeting of the NAACP and Urban League where he finished his speech by shouting, let my people go. Okay. Yeah. He's preaching to an integrated congregation, right? He is. Illegally, the congregation was not supposed to be desegregated at the time. He's aligning himself with kind of the civil rights movement as it's beginning. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Because we're talking, well, well, it's 1960, so the civil rights movement has been kind of bubbling under the surface for at least a decade now. But he's all in. This is, this is like his thing. He's all in. Okay. So we're talking pre-March on Selma, mm-hmm. but we're also talking about, the, the civil rights movement is, is building to a head at this point. And Jones, he is taking over Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. He is integrated churches, restaurants, the police department, the amusement park that's there, the hospital, restaurants, you name it, and Jim Jones is going around and racially integrating them. There was a famous incident where swastikas were painted on the homes of two black families, and Jones went to that neighborhood and counseled white families not to move. Mm-hmm. And he also provided comfort to the local black community. And he would, like, send people undercover to restaurants to catch them refusing to serve black customers. Mm -hmm. And if this guy had been around in the era of the Internet, he would have been a master Internet troll. He wrote letters to the American Nazi Party. And whatever they sent back to him, he would just pass right on to the local Indianapolis papers to publish. Oh, boy. I mean, he does have a certain amount of style. He's, he does still at this point. He's still a weird dude. Like, that cannot be overstated. He A lot of people who know him say he's incredibly charismatic, but there's also something a little off-putting about him. Mm-hmm. But he is incredibly charismatic. And one of my favorite incidents of it was he collapsed in 1961. Uh, he had a, a health issue of some kind. And he was accidentally placed in the black ward of the hospital. This is a segregated hospital. This was a segregated hospital. Uh And they tried to move him, and he refused. And he spent his time there emptying the bedpans and making the beds of the other people in the black ward of the hospital. Interesting. Yep. 
And then what, what winds up happening is because he did this, he embarrassed the hospital officials into desegregating. Oh. So now, of course, everybody hated him for this. <laughs> uh, Indiana was not ready for desegregation. Local businesses would speak out against him a lot. His church had a swastika painted on it. He got, you know, he'd get threatening phone calls. Somebody threw a dead cat through his window. Ugh. And the, the probably the most dangerous one was that they, they had a coal pile outside of the church for, you know, their, their furnace. Mm-hmm. And somebody left a stick of dynamite in it. So it's important to know that Jim Jones took racial integration incredibly seriously. He and his wife adopted is this the rainbow family yeah they adopted six children and yes they they referred to this as the rainbow family uh his quote was that quote integration is a more personal thing with me now it's a question of my son's future Mm. end quote and he began to refer to the temple as a rainbow family so he adopted three korean american kids uh, a child who was part native american an African-American child. And then you have the one of the weird ones where he adopted uh, a little boy named Tim whose birth mother was a member of the church. Mm-hmm. And then he and his wife had their only biological child uh, who they named Stefan Gandhi. So Interesting. Kind of neat. So he, he bangs around the world a bit. He goes to Brazil. And then when he comes back... He tells his congregation in Indiana that the world is going to end on July 15th, 1967. The bombs are going to drop and we are going to move the temple from Indiana to Northern California. See, yeah, I cults know. are fun <laughs> up until they decide that they are doomsday cults. That, that's when yeah. people get really scary to me. Join a cult. Have a great time. Enjoy peace, love, singing, lentil stew. It's when you pick a day and say the world is going to end on this day. We need to start buying guns. Yep. That's when that's when I personally would say, no, thank you. <laughs> this is not the cult for me. Yeah. So then they move and obviously the world doesn't end in 1967. Because that is the problem with doomsday cults. The day comes yep. and goes, nobody dies, and then somebody says, oh, we got the date wrong. It's really going to end two years from now, so let's stock up even more guns. This is the problem with doomsday cults. They're never right. And this is the other thing, is that this is really where he transitions full on into cult leader. Yes. Because in the early 1970s, I think this is 1971, he writes a booklet called The Letter Killeth. And what this booklet is, is... It basically says that the Bible is a tool that is meant to uh, prop up white men and keep everyone else down. And Jones begins to preach that he is the reincarnation of a laundry list of people, including Gandhi, Buddha, Vladimir Lenin. Oh, honey. Father Divine. And Why are you dragging Lenin into this? And of course, Jesus. There's a temple member who leaves and has a quotation of him where he says that 
What you need to believe in me is what you can see. If you see me as your friend, I am your friend. If you see me as your father, I'll be your father. If you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God. Oh, that's so creepy. And his preaching style has really changed. When he began, he was a, a fairly mild-mannered is absolutely the wrong <laughs> word. He was, he was, he was mild-mannered compared to the later Jim Jones. Compared to, yeah. <laughs> His his early preachings were very much, you know, like readings from the Bible and and discussions. And then he adapted this sort of very fiery tone. Mm -hmm. And that's what really dragged people in. There was a quote about him from his wife that said, Jim is using religion to try to get people out of the opiate of religion. Wait, he's using religion to try to get people out of the opiate of religion? Because, you know, he believes that the religions of the world are there to make people complacent and go along with their leaders. So go along with me. <laughs> but he's also offering a cult. To go along with him. Okay. Exactly. Yes. He famously slams a Bible down, screaming, I've got to destroy this paper idol. Oh, boy. And in one of his sermons, there's the quotation of, you, you've got to help yourself or you'll get no help. There's only one hope of glory, and that's within you. Nobody is going to come out of the sky. There's no heaven up there. We have to make heaven down here. And that's what really makes the People's Temple kind of catch fire sure. in, in Northern California. He had started off in the Redwood Valley area near a city named Yukia. But then in the 1970s, they start leasing a building in San Francisco and start holding services there. Now, is this where he starts get, getting interested in national politics? So in 1975, the temple plays an absolutely instrumental role in getting George Moscone elected as mayor of San Francisco. And Moscone turns around and appoints Jones as the chairman of the Housing Authority Commission in San Francisco. And now because of that, he has contacts with like national-level politicians he and Moscone, they get to meet with Walter Mondale right before the 1976 election, which leads Mondale to publicly praise the temple, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, nothing looks good in retrospect. But at the time, I'm sure he thought it was just nice. He meets with Rosalind Carter, mm. the sitting first lady, on multiple occasions. The two of them wrote letters to each other. And at the grand opening of his headquarters in San Francisco, she is one of the invited speakers. Hmm. So that's the level we're talking about here. He's friends with Harvey Milk. Mm -hmm. Jones likes to talk with not newspaper reporters, but newspaper publishers now. Okay. That's a level up. He knew how to get the media on his side, and he really liked it when they were on his side. He, he liked... To play the part of the righteous leader. Mm -hmm. And all of the stuff that he did was based around that persona that he had created. One of the most famous things he did, and one of the things where there are more pictures of him at this event than any other, uh, is when the eviction protests in San Francisco in 1977 broke out. Mm -hmm. Jim Jones was front and center, preaching about taking care of the poor, preaching about uh, the evils of money lending and being a landlord. And he was really, really 
getting really good press until a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle named Marshall Kilduff was assigned basically a puff piece. Mm -hmm. He was supposed to go in and write something nice about the People's Temple. And what he discovered was that it was operating very close to a cult. Uh, you had people who had absolute power over other people. You had a, a internal group that was really looked at as a secret police. Mm -hmm. So Marshall Kilduff was not able to write the puff piece. He began to turn in an investigative piece. And his editors at the Chronicle told him, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, we like this guy. Hmm. Now, this is not the first time that Jim Jones got bad press. In 1972, a writer named Lester Kinsolving published uh, a seven-part piece in uh, the San Francisco Examiner and the Indianapolis Star that was all about how Jim Jones was defacing and speaking out against the Bible. The internal dealings of the church were pretty shady. The faith healing stuff was pretty shady. And the temple members uh, picketed the San Francisco Examiner office, harassed the editor, threatened both papers with libel suits. And so the last three parts of the seven-part story were never published. Mm. And then immediately after that, Jones makes very generous grants to California newspapers with the stated goal of supporting the First Amendment. I mean, <laughs> we all love the First Amendment. <laughs> yeah. Also, the first major defection occurred in 1973. So we're going to take a brief moment here to talk about the Gang of Eight. The Gang of Eight were eight members of the People's Temple who left mm -hmm. together in 1973. And they were so scared of Jim Jones at that point. They were concerned that he would send a search party after them. And they weren't, they weren't just concerned about like being dragged back to the church and reconditioned. Mm -hmm. They were worried about straight up being killed. Uh, their fears were not unfounded. Jones apparently sent out multiple search parties looking for them, uh, one of which rented an airplane so it could fly over the highways and try to spot their truck. Oh, boy. The Gang of Eight split into three trucks and tried to drive to Canada. The eight of them were armed to the teeth. None of them were taking chances. There were long rifles, handguns, shotguns, and they avoided U.S. Highway 101 because they didn't want to uh, be spotted easily. Mm -hmm. And then they, they were headed to the U.S.-Canada border, and then they realized that they can't cross the border with all these firearms. So they hid in the hills of Montana. As you do. It's a good place to hide. And they wrote an open letter with, with their complaints and what they'd seen in the church and, and what had, had been happening. Okay. At this point, Jones's church has anywhere from two to 8,000 people in it. He's, he's claiming huge numbers, but because he's manipulating the numbers for the benefit of the media to mm -hmm. make the church seem bigger, it's, it's hard to know how many people they actually had in the temple. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we do know is that they were people who, they needed a home. They needed a place where they could go and feel like 
they were part of something and that and that they were valued and jim jones gave them that his quote about if you need a father i will be your father Mm -hmm. he genuinely meant that many of these people even after uh the the massacre at jonestown and jim jones's death spoke very movingly about how valued they felt as part of his movement and how betrayed they felt by how it ended but while they were part of it they felt very valued interesting well i think his you know his the idea at the bottom of the people's temple is creating this utopia which is which is a community yeah the idea of that is very attractive i can see why yeah. people were really into joining and probably you know stayed even after it looked like it was Maybe not going to work out. Yeah. Well, even at this point, after the Gang of Eight, shall we say, escaped, Mm -hmm. uh, this is when Jim Jones starts to plan mass suicide. He's already pretty paranoid at this point. And from all the people that defected and survived, he was really viewed as becoming very unhinged. Mm -hmm. He wasn't the most level table to begin with right Jeannie Mills was a temple member who left but she was still part of the the people's temple at the time that the gang of eight left and she and about 30 other people were called to Jim Jones's home and told that in light of this mass defection quote in order to keep our socialism We should all kill ourselves and leave a note saying that because of harassment, our society cannot exist at this time. You know, the problem I have with him at this point is that he doesn't seem to have, like, an end game. Like, he he has this utopian vision, but you don't see him really building towards that. He has the the people, right? And he has the network. And it's making him wealthy. Obviously, he has a ton of money. But yep. he just never seems to make any progress on what he's really, what he says he's intentionally trying to create. That's, and, I, and I think that that's exactly it. I think that, that one of the issues is that his own messaging is very confused here. He's obviously a very disturbed person, even from you know childhood. He just happens to be in this position of tremendous power, influence, and privilege. So Marshall Kildoff starts to write... A piece that is very critical Mm -hmm. of the People's Temple and especially of Jim Jones. Mm -hmm. As we said before, uh, the Chronicle won't publish it. Jim Jones is good friends with the editors at the Chronicle. Uh, So he brings the story to New West magazine uh, where it is published. And uh, a few prominent politicians and and social leaders start to kind of edge away from him. Some of them do not. Uh, Mm -hmm. Harvey Milk for example, stood by him to the end. Hmm. But it's 1977, and Jim Jones decides that this is no longer the place for us. So this is the part of the story where we insert the person of Timothy Stone. Timothy Stone was a lawyer who was the attorney for the Temple and Jones personally. Mm -hmm. So after the Gang of Eight defect... Jones has Timothy Stone draft some immediate action contingency plans, and these are supposed to be activated in response to either a media crackdown or a police crackdown. So I'm not sure how many churches 
have sitting plans for what to do when the cops come a-knocking? Just the paranoid ones. Yeah, so we're seeing that. And so the plans he comes up with include fleeing to Canada, Barbados, or Trinidad, and forming quote-unquote missionary posts there, and then just relocating all the members of the church there so that they'll be outside of of uh, extradition and jurisdiction of the United States. Mm -hmm. So what they settle on is they settle on Guyana. So Guyana at the time is pretty socialist itself. Guyana was a country with a predominantly indigenous population. Well, they're a former British colony. They were colonized, but they were not um, really populated too much by the British. Mm -hmm. But they do speak English. Right. Their prime minister is a guy named Forbes Burnham. I mean, that's a British name right there. It sure is. <laughs> and Jim Jones also viewed Guyana as somewhere where they could uh, purchase a lot of land inexpensively and a place where he could easily, you know, uh, influence things. So he sets up this thing called the People's Temple Agricultural Project. And what he does is he does a very smart thing. He tells uh, the Guyanese government that he wants to set it up near the disputed border with Venezuela. Hmm. Now, at the time, Burnham's government was concerned that Venezuela might attack them over the border. So having this, like, buffer zone of, like, American citizens... He put Jonestown in there as a safety measure? He allowed them to buy that land... As, yeah, a little bit of safety because oh Venezuela would not, in their right mind, attack Guyana if it meant going through a bunch of Americans. Right. And he started this plan back in 1974. So they purchase about 3,800 acres, and it's about 150 miles west of the capital of Georgetown. Mm -hmm. The site's not great, okay? The nearest body of water is seven miles away by mud roads. The soil is not good. Mm -hmm. They encourage about 500 members to relocate to the settlement. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of shady, underhanded stuff that they do. They're, they're allowed to import stuff duty-free. He gets Guyana to permit mass migration at any point. And in the summer of 1977, the San Francisco media is investigating now actively mm -hmm. and jim jones gets out of dodge by the time he and everybody else relocates to what is now called jonestown there's about 900 people there so they're starting out with 900 people for this this project they sent about 500 people over as part of like the building crew gotcha and then another 400 or so migrate over when the pressure gets turned up in San Francisco. I see. So there is a big rift in the people that don't leave. And that rift is headed up by this attorney, Timothy Stone. Timothy Stone has, he defects in 1977. He no longer believes in what Jones is selling. And second of all, he doesn't want to move to Guyana. Now, the really big problem here is that Timothy Stone and his wife, Grace, have a child. A child named John. This is so messy. Yeah. And it was the practice of the temple to have Jim Jones listed 
on any birth certificate of any child born by the uh, members because he is all of their father, right? So because he's got the name on the legal document. So he's able to kidnap this child. He's able to legally kidnap a child, yes. And this is, and, and... After both of his parents have left the group, right? Greystone leaves the temple the year before and begins divorce proceedings. So Timothy Stone, still a member of the temple, Mm -hmm. brings the child down to Jonestown to escape the custody dispute. So scummy move. Yeah. But then Stone defects shortly after. He defects about six months after he moved down there. Mm -hmm. He leaves, but the temple keeps the child in Jonestown. He couldn't get his kid out, basically, is the issue. And I think he was thinking as an attorney where he could go back to the United States and petition people to get his get his son out. Which he does, and right? Yet, or he tries. Which, which is what happens next. And uh, this is where the, the content warning really kicks in, because we are now officially starting to talk about the mass murder of Jonestown. So Timothy Stone and other temple defectors, he starts gathering other defectors of the temple around him, and they form a group called the Concerned Relatives, and it's because they all have family members still in Jonestown. So Stone, again, he's an attorney. He knows his way around the law. He goes to Washington, D.C. to visit with State Department officials. And he writes what's called a white paper. Mm-hmm. And a white paper, very simply, is a report that is meant to tell your intended audience what you want them to be, to be doing, basically. Mm-hmm. When you write a white paper to Congress, it's usually, this is something... That is extremely concerning. Please help. So one of the current congressmen of California is Congressman Leo Ryan. So Leo Ryan was uh, the Democratic representative from California's 11th congressional district. He had been elected in 1973. A quick sidebar about Leo Ryan. He seems like a pretty decent dude. Yeah. He was a substitute teacher. Oh, I didn't know that. He was a substitute teacher, and he took and he took that job after the Watts incident in 1965, mm-hmm. so that he could document conditions in the area. Lots of white flight, lots of people being awful to each other. And in 1970, he launched an investigation into California prisons. He oversaw prison reform. He snuck himself into Folsom State Prison as an inmate under a false name, oh so he could document the conditions. Like this guy was this guy was a was a champion for people who didn't have a voice he vocally criticized the lack of congressional oversight of the cia Mm -hmm. uh the hughes ryan amendment of 1974 which prohibits the cia to just have a blank budget (laughs) uh is named after him and he seems like a solid good person yeah uh so leo ryan gets involved and he writes a letter on the behalf of Timothy Stone to Forbes Burnham, the Prime Minister of Guyana. And the Concerned Relatives group also starts a legal battle over custody, but it's a toothless one because they can contest custody all they want in United States courts. Guyana has no international agreement to hand the child over. Right. As I said, a lot of Jim Jones's highest political allies are fleeing him 
Harvey Milk is not. He writes a letter to Jimmy Carter defending Jones as a man of the highest character. Harvey, he's so nice. And uh, Mayor Muscone's office issues a press release that states that Jones broke no laws and, you know, welcome back anytime. Oh, boy. The concerned relatives go on the offensive and they start issuing a packet of uh, affidavits, documents, and letters, which is all under the title of an accusation of human rights violations by Reverend James Warren Jones. Hmm. A woman named Deborah Layton manages to escape Jonestown in 1978, and she she goes into detail about like actual crimes mm-hmm. and the substandard living conditions in Jonestown. Jones is always good at playing the victim here, and he hires... Uh, the JFK assassination conspiracy theorists Mark Lane and Donald Freed to help him make the case of a of a grand conspiracy against the temple by U.S. intelligence agencies. This is such an interesting move. You He's hire... trying to rehab his image. Right. You hire the conspiracy theorists to work for you to find a conspiracy that you're sure is out there. No, that you know doesn't exist. Did, did he know that? Because he is really coming off the rails at this point. As soon as they move to Guyana. He's completely off the rails. That's it, huh? Yeah, I mean he's he's been... He was on barbiturates uh, at this point. He had an injury and he just stayed on the pain medications? Which is really common. Common, it's very common. But when you're in a position where you have unlimited money and unlimited resources and a lot of power over a lot of people. You can get out of control very quickly. Yeah. yeah, it's not great. And that's in addition to his issues that... Yeah, that he had going into it. Right. Sorry, do you want to talk about drugs Let's talk about drugs for a minute. So he was prescribing amphetamines to himself. He has a medical staff at this point. Yes. And he decides that what he really needs is stimulants. Okay. So he's he's on stimulants and burbituates. So he's on uppers and downers. So he is extremely high. Yeah. And dependent on these drugs, right? He's and depend, right. He has a huge tolerance because at his autopsy, they find levels of drugs that would have caused an overdose in someone who didn't have a huge tolerance. Gotcha. And it seems like it's ongoing for quite some time. Yeah. His use of sunglasses. You know how he has he sunglasses on? He always has the sunglasses on. Yeah, it's because his eyes are constantly bloodshot, right? Because of the amphetamines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's not great. So he's, he's out of his mind on substances, and he's a little out of his mind, you know, just in general. Uh, and he has nobody around him who can tell him no. And the fecal matter hits the oscillating rotor when Leo Ryan decides he needs to investigate Jonestown. Mm-hmm. Leo Ryan... He's established himself as a, a champion of people who don't have a champion, and he's heard of human rights abuses here in Jonestown, so he decides to lead a fact-finding mission. God bless Leo Ryan. Yeah. That is a bold move. It's a very bold move, because he doesn't know exactly what he's walking into, uh, but he knows mm-hmm. he knows that, you know, something is wrong, and he wants to, uh, he wants to try to fix it. Um... The State Department does not want to take action here because Jonestown is in Guyana and they don't want to cause like an international problem here. Mm-hmm. And he's he's really kind of going against his own party and his own government to go down there and just make sure people aren't being abused. I mean, as a former substitute teacher. Agreed. 
He's pretty tough. He's, yes. He can take exactly. it. Exactly. We, we are former substitute teachers. We we are not afraid of your, of your cult leader. So Leo Ryan, he gets it down as an official governmental investigation. He gets permission from the government and funding from the government. Uh, he's going in his official capacity as the chairman of the Congressional Subcommittee with Jurisdiction over U.S. Citizens Living in Foreign Countries. That is a long title. He asks other members of the California Bay Area Congressional Delegation to go with him, and they all turn him down. Yeah, no kidding. Would you go? Uh, no. I would not I, go. I don't, well, I don't know, because that's the thing. We don't. The only reason we know how bad things are in Jonestown is because Leo Ryan went there. When he went in, he kind of went in blind. He had an idea but he didn't actually know. Um, hmm. Ryan also invites uh, his friend, a Republican congressman from Indiana named Dan Quayle. Oh, interesting. Yep. He and Dan Quayle were buddies. And Dan Quayle had served with Ryan on the Government Operations Committee, uh, but Quayle was unable to go. And so this trip sort of balloons, okay? Uh, Ryan was just going to go with a few members of his staff and some people, uh, you know, some reporters, but the concerned relatives ask if they can join in. So what winds up happening is he comes with 17 relatives of People's Temple members, mm -hmm. several newspaper reporters, and a full TV team from NBC. And Jones's current legal counsel, because Tim Stone is no longer that, he starts to try to say, you know, listen, uh, you can't bring all these people. And Ryan says, look, I'm coming whether Jones gives me permission or not. Mm -hmm. He states in a letter that a settlement like this, I just want to make sure it's not being authoritarian. Its residents have to be allowed to come and go as they please. And if this place is, quote, a gulag, unquote, he would do everything he could to liberate people. I mean, that's a really nice idea. He's taking a very strong stand. Yeah. So he arrives in Georgetown, the capital of Guyana, on November 14th. Ryan's people are just negotiating with Jones's people. They're having these meetings with embassy personnel and Guyanese officials. Ryan is being shown the sights of Georgetown and all this stuff. <laughs> he asks to speak with Jones by radio. And they tell mm -hmm. him, no, because you're on an unscheduled visit. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Wow. Finally, on November 17th, so three days later, Ryan, the United States Embassy Deputy Chief, Richard Dwyer, nine journalists, and four of the concerned relatives board a small plane to fly to Port Kaituma, which is just a few miles outside of Jonestown. And they're all, they're all given this oddly warm welcome. Everyone is you know, very kind and welcoming and, oh, come look at my garden. You know, like they're they're showing off their little houses. Mm -hmm. They're talking about how great it is to live here. They're talking about how, you know, how, how wonderful uh, Jim Jones is, how they feel free for the first time in their lives. And somebody passes a note to one of the NBC guys. Mm -hmm. uh, and the note says, please help us get out. That's so creepy. Yeah. Just the idea of... of this like warm welcome and and then dear god get me out of here yeah yeah oh it's so horror movie the reporter makes sure that ryan uh gets the note but because he has eyes and ears everywhere jones finds out about the note so the temple member who's trying to get out is a guy named vernon gosney and vernon gosney basically gets in leo ryan's ear and is like these people are going to kill you 
you need to get out. And he says basically that he tried and failed to impress upon him the extreme danger that they were in. That night, the NBC crew and the political delegation, they go back to the airfield in Port Kaituma. The next morning, Leo Ryan and Richard Dwyer go back to Jonestown, and they're approached by somebody else who wants to try to get herself and her family out. The media shows up at around 11 o'clock in the morning, and they're interviewing members, getting people's interviews on tape, all this other stuff. And Ryan talks with Jones, and Jones, he tries to play the magnanimous leader. Uh, he says, you know, listen, we're not a prison. Nobody here is, against, is, is held here against their will. Anyone who wants to leave can leave at any time. Everybody's free. We are the freest people on the planet. So if anybody, if anybody wants to leave, uh, you, you are welcome to leave. A couple people take him up on uh, that. A number of people take him up on that. Yeah. About 14 people try to leave, plus another guy trying to leave. This guy's name is Larry Layton. Larry Layton, he was one of the, the right-hand men of Jones. He was a person who was known by the other people in Jonestown as the guy who did Jim Jones's dirty work. Mm -hmm. So Larry Layton claiming to want to leave really scared the people who were legitimately trying to leave. So the, the other people try to warn Leo Ryan that Larry Layton is not on the up and up, that he is not trying to defect. He's probably going to try to do violence upon people. But Jones gives everybody permission to leave. That's the important thing. Jones is saying, you know, hey, you guys are, are, are free to go. One of the hardest ones is that there's a, a guy named Al Simon. Al Simon, he's Native American. He had joined the temple because of the promises of equality and such. He tries to leave. He attempts to take two of his children to Leo Ryan and get out. His wife comes over the loudspeakers denouncing him. He pleads with her to return to the U.S. She's, you know, she's calling him a traitor. It's just these these really ugly heightened scenes. And this is going on while the Congressional Party is there. While the Congressional Party not only is there, but is trying to, like, leave with these people who want to get out. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of all of this, a temple member named Don Sly pulls a knife and tries to kill Leo Ryan. And the, the attack is stopped. But Ryan and his delegation basically pull up stakes at that moment, and they, they get out. Yeah. So it's them and 15 other people, including Larry Layton. Now, Leo Ryan, it should be stated that Leo Ryan actually wanted to stay. After the knife attack, Leo Ryan wanted to stay and address the disputes and try to fix the problems. And the deputy chief of the United States Embassy mission, Richard Dwyer, is like, nope, we are out. It starts raining. You got to remember, they're in the jungle of Guyana. There are violent rainstorms, and they arrive at the Kaituma airstrip at about 4:45. They have two planes there, so they have a twin-engine Otter, which is the bigger plane, and a Cessna, which can only carry six people. Uh, so they put six people into the Cessna, including Larry Layton, and everybody else gets loaded into the Otter. So they're on the planes. So they're on the planes. The Cessna gets set up for takeoff mm -hmm. and taxis to the far end of the airstrip and Larry Layton pulls a handgun and he starts shooting. He is unable to kill anyone, which is good. He wounds three of the six passengers and then they disarm him 
and subdue him. Mm -hmm. A tractor arrives pulling a trailer, and the people in the trailer are the temple's so-called Red Brigade, which is their security squad. They open fire with shotguns, handguns, and rifles uh, while circling the plane. We will never know the identity of the shooters, but we know that there were nine of them. And the first seconds of the shooting was actually captured by the NBC cameraman. It just is so horrible to me that these guys were filming and recording during the attack. I don't know why that you know, is just so I think there's awful. a sense of duty of, like, I need to get this on tape. I don't know. I, I get it. Right, but, like, they, they go on this trip, which is supposed to be, like, a PR trip yeah. well, and a fact-finding mission. And, you know, it just gets progressively crazier and crazier. And then at the very end, and they're, and they're still filming. It's, so ugh. the cameraman is killed uh, along with uh, a few of the delegation, a few of the defectors. And Leo Ryan himself uh, was shot more than 20 times. Hmm. A number of other people did survive. So the Cessna's pilot gets the pilot and co-pilot of the Twin Otter, as well as one of the injured people, onto the Cessna, and they flee back to Georgetown, leaving the Twin Otter, which is damaged and can't fly, and the injured but not dead Ryan delegation members at the airstrip. Oh, God. Yeah. How awful is that? Now, Ryan had stated to Jim Jones and Jim Jones's people, listen, I'm, I'm describing Jonestown in basically good terms. The, the relatives that he had targeted for interviews, the people that the, the concerned relatives had wanted to get out, had stated that they didn't want to leave. Mm -hmm. The 14 people who did want to leave are 14 people out of over 900, you know? Right. So it's mm -hmm. not like the pointlessness of this is what I'm trying to get at here, because Ryan yeah. was basically going to say, look, I get why they're upset, but there's nothing, there's nothing legal we can do here. They seem happy. And the actual quote was that, I'd still say you have a beautiful place here, end quote. Oh, man. When this report is given to Jim Jones, Jim Jones's response is, quote, I have failed, all is lost, end quote. So we need to talk about the White Knights. So we've got the Red Brigade and the White Knights? The White Knights is not a K-N-I-G-H-T, it is an N-I-G-H-T. The White Knights are rehearsals. What are they rehearsals for? Revolutionary suicide, quote-unquote. Oh. Basically, they were practices. Jim Jones would call a purported emergency, kind of like a fire drill. Deborah Layton, uh, when she issued her affidavit, this is the quotation. Quote, everyone, including the children, was told to line up, and we would be given a small glass of liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison and we would die when we did as we were told. When the time came and we had not dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and that this had just been a loyalty test. He warned us that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands, end quote. Oh, that's horrifying. They got monthly half-pound shipments of cyanide because Jones obtained a jeweler's license to buy it in 1976, purportedly to clean gold. Hmm. Their doctors apparently tested out the cyanide on the pigs of Jonestown because of the similar metabolism. Mm -hmm. So they had had anywhere from three to eight of these white night rehearsals. And keeping in mind, right now, Jones' health is in the toilet. 
he had a lung infection. He was abusing Valium, Quaaludes, stimulants, barbiturates. He's got high blood pressure. He's having small strokes. He's having temporary blindness, convulsions, swelling of the extremities, chronic insomnia. He's slurring his speech. He can't finish his sentences. And he's incredibly paranoid. And it all comes to a head after the shootings. So after the shootings, the the Red Guard people come back and they tell him what they did. Jones, despite his, you know, mental state, knows that this isn't something that the U.S. is just going to let slide. And so they gather everything up and uh, there is... Okay, there is a cassette tape. It's about 44 minutes long, and it is the record of part of the meeting that Jones calls inside their main pavilion there, uh, and it mm-hmm. keeps running. Um, so what they do is they prepare a metal tub of grape flavor aid. Not Kool-Aid. Everybody says drinking the Kool-Aid, but it wasn't actually Kool-Aid. It was flavor aid. So they put diphenhydramine, promethazine, chlorpromazine, chloroquine, chloral hydrate, valium, and cyanide into the grape flavor aid. And those are all uh, sedatives, right? Except for the it's cyanide. All, it's obviously. all relaxants except for the cyanide, yeah. It's, it's, okay. I, I think if we're going to frame this in the only possible good light, it's, I think they wanted to try to make it painless. So he calls everybody together and he tells them, quote, we'd better not have any of our children left when this is over because they'll parachute in here on us, end quote. And who's the they? Is that just the U.S. government, the U.S. Army? Okay. A temple member is heard to shout, you know, don't let yourself be captured, all this other stuff. And they they start shouting around to try to make some counterarguments. Somebody suggests to attempt to airlift to the Soviet Union. Did you listen to this tape? I did. Oh, man. I did. The whole thing? I'm really, yeah, and I'm not happy that I did. So a bunch of people uh, shout her down, and then Jones confirms that the congressman has been killed. So at this point, there's no more dissent. Everybody lines up, and um, a few temple members... Uh, escape into the jungle. They just run for it. Uh, Do they survive? They do. A few of them do survive because they they run before the Red Brigade kind of has everybody surrounded with orders to shoot anybody resisting. Smart moves. And they make it it into the jungle. Uh, One of them is named Odell Rhodes, and he actually witnesses the massacre. Um, So the first person uh, to take the cup and drink is a woman named Ruletta Paul. And um, she has a one-year-old infant, and they use a syringe without a needle uh, to squirt the mixture into the infant's mouth. And uh, it was a lot of mothers with babies to first approach the tub. The poison uh, causes death uh, within five minutes for the children, Uh, less for the babies 
Uh, it takes about half an hour to 20 minutes for adults. <clears throat> and it seems like um, it's, I mean, it's obviously horrible, but it seems like it's fairly peaceful as well. Nope. Uh, because no. this mixture doesn't work in the way that they intended. Um, oh, dear. According to um, Rhodes, uh, one of the people was screaming in agony, asking, can this go any faster? Uh, you can actually hear the uh, crying and screaming of the children uh, on the tape recording. Um <clears throat> So after they take the poison, the people get escorted down a wooden walkway outside of the pavilion. And it's not initially clear as to whether or not this is just another white knight rehearsal. Right. After seeing the poison start to take effect on other people, Jones starts telling people, die with a degree of dignity. Don't start screaming, basically. Uh, I don't tell you, quote, I, don't, I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear. I don't care how many anguished cries. Death is a million times preferable to ten more days of this life, end quote. Mm -hmm. Rhodes describes a scene of uh, confusion because the parents uh, watch their, their children die. Mm -hmm. And um, a few of them just sort of sit down and wait. The crowd uh, is surrounded. All the people are surrounded by the armed guards, by the Red Brigade, uh, basically saying, you know, you can poison yourself or we can shoot you. The guards are the last to be called in to uh, take their drinks. So, Jones was found dead, lying next to his chair with his head cushioned by a pillow. Uh, his death was not by poison, but by a gunshot wound to the head, consistent with being self-inflicted. At Jonestown, 909 people died. Uh, 304 of which were children. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. Now, there were some survivors. <laughs> there were some survivors. Uh, one of them was a man named Grover Davis, who was 79 and stone deaf. Mm -hmm. He missed the announcement on the loudspeaker, and when he realized what was going on, he laid down in a ditch and pretended to be dead. So... Smart move. Good job, Grover. Very smart, yeah. Another survivor was Hyacinth Thrash. She realized what was happening and hid under her bed and only left hours and hours later until everybody else had died. It, this is the largest death of American citizens until September 11th. Oh, it just boggles the mind. Back at the airstrip, the Guyanese government arrives. Uh, they arrest Larry Layton. And they rescue the people who had been stranded at the other plane. Oh, those people are still there? The twin otter. Well, it's only the next morning. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is a really fast timeline. Okay. And uh, Dwyer survived the shootings and basically points out Larry Layton, who is immediately arrested by the Guyanese police. Dwyer was shot during the attack, but he survived it. Mm -hmm. They get everybody out that they can the more seriously wounded are kept in a small tent at the airstrip while uh while they're waiting for a plane the rest of them are taken to port kaituma by truck a guyanese government plane arrives the next morning to get the wounded out and also rescue defectors who escaped the the murders um who were lost in the jungles uh, including five teenagers 
who were given instructions to run and hide until uh, you know you're safe. And the Guyanese soldiers found them after three days of being in the jungle. Oh, boy. But they found them. Odell Rhodes is rescued as well. Mm -hmm. He gets taken to safety. He walks all the way from the camp to Port Kaituma and taken to safety. So then uh, what winds up happening is that the United States military arranges a military cargo plane to pick up the bodies that they have to deal with uh, to Mm -hmm. take them by military cargo plane to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware that had recently been used for the mass processing of the dead of the Tenerife airport disaster. Thirteen days later, the last shipment of bodies is brought to Delaware. Um, They fingerprint, identify, and process all the bodies. A lot of the people doing that uh, have PTSD after dealing with that. Of course. And they contract out to the Dover area funeral homes uh, for the cremations. Uh, Larry Layton was found not guilty of attempted murder in Guyanese court. Really? uh, Employing his defense that he had been brainwashed. He gets deported by Guyana back to the U.S., arrested Mm -hmm. by the U.S. Marshal Service as soon as the plane touches down, uh, and he is tried under the federal statute against assassinating members of Congress and Mm. internationally protected people, and he is convicted of conspiracy and aiding and abetting the murder of Leo Ryan, an attempted murder of Dwyer. He was paroled in 2002. He is the only person uh, to have been held criminally responsible for Jonestown. I'm sorry, he was paroled? In 2002, yes. Okay, but he killed a bunch of people. He killed nobody. He shot three people, and then they wrestled the gun away from him and, and restrained him. Okay. He is instrumental in the murders of a number of people. But he technically, all the people he shot survived. I feel like that is not enough time to spend in jail for ordering people to be killed. Okay. Well, unfortunately, the man who ordered people to be killed killed himself. Is dead, yeah. So the site is all covered in uh, vegetation today. There are the remains of the tractor and uh, a truck near what was Jim Jones's house. And in 2003, uh, one of the pilots who had been involved with the Jonestown cleanup uh, led a camera crew there for the a remembrance uh, event on the 25th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they found a large bed of daisies growing uh, where a number of the bodies had, had been uh, recovered. So. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there is a, uh, there is a predilection in human nature that we really like it when we know who the bad guy is, who the good guy is, and more importantly, we know what we're doing is right. So if, uh, if there's any lesson that can be taken from this, it is that no matter how strong your faith in something or someone is, please allow yourself to stay skeptical, to accept information, to not believe everything that you're told without uh, verification. Keep an open mind. It's more fun that way. Change your opinion once in a while. Yep. And 
there's no real lesson to be learned here other than that there there will be people who will always prey on the people who need help the most. There will always be good ideas that yeah. are not really good ideas. Yep. And there will always be people who use good ideas to get people to do some very bad things. And it sounds hollow, but be kind. Be kind to each other. It's 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 absolute madness out there sometimes and the best thing we can do is just be kinder. So that's Jonestown. Ooh. Yeah. Thank you so much for making it through this episode with us. Uh, that was a tough one. We do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. So if you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at our new improved email address, relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Next week, we are going to <laughs> hopefully have a special guest star um, to explain some of the technical aspects of the Casey Jones Railroad accident of the 1900. Excellent. That sounds like an amazing disaster, and I can't wait to talk about it with you.